Hey everybody, this is Jamie Nunley, lead pastor of Victory Fellowship Church. Thanks for listening to the VFC Sermon Podcast. At the end of this episode, please take a moment to download our free VFC Thomasville app, where you can access all of our messages, sermon notes, announcements, and small group lessons. This app is the easiest way to keep up with everything going on here at VFC. So please enjoy the following sermon. We hope it encourages you in your walk with Jesus and helps you to belong, believe, and become. Enjoy. How are you doing this morning? Good. Awesome. Well, this is one of my favorite series that we do here at VFC. We do it every single summer. It's called This Is My Story. And you heard from Jamie last week. Um, and uh, this, week we ha- or this week, we have a very special guest speaker. You know, one of my favorite parts of being a part of this community is the sto- getting to hear the stories that everyone has, whether it's I'm talking to people at food pantry on Thursday mornings, or I'm meeting someone for the first time here on Sunday, or I'm hearing from someone during giving, re- giving and receiving. Like Everybody has a story, and if you didn't know this, your story can have an impact. And so that's the purpose of this series, to hear how God has moved throughout the lives of people within within Scripture and within our congregation. And our next guest, um, I've had the just the honor to minister alongside and witness him preach to a bunch of kids. Um, his heart and his zeal for the gospel is unmatched. I want you guys to give it up for Mr. Noah Henson. Thank you, sir. Appreciate that intro. Zeal is unmatched. I'll take that, man. I appreciate that. Um, yeah, so as I start, I just want to take a minute and thank uh, Jamie and the leadership at VFC for giving me an opportunity to share my story. Um, my name is Noah Henson. Zarek said, uh, I have been attending VFC with my family for the last three years. We've been partners for the last year and a half. Um, I have my beautiful wife, Sutton, who I've been married to for six going on seven years, which is unbelievable that she stuck around that long. Um, We have a beautiful three-and-a-half-year-old girl named Mercy James and a nine-month-old named Joni. They couldn't be with us today. They are actually visiting uh, her parents up in Fenwick Island, Delaware, about 15 hours, straight up 95. Um, And so if you're watching, girls, I love you. I'll see you soon. but we've been in Thomasville for six years. We got married my last semester of college and came down. I was coaching and teaching at Thomasville High before um, feeling a, a pull from God into full-time vocational ministry with the Fellowship of Christian Athletes in our area. And if you don't know much about FCA and what we do and kind of what we're about, um, we're a ministry that uses the platform of sports uh, to share the gospel. And if you've ever been to a football, basketball, baseball game at any of the three school systems in Thomas County, you know that sports matter, right? They have a lot of influence. And so seeing that in influence in my own life play out in coaches, male and female, who saw their, their role as a coach as more than just um, X's and O's and winning games, but as an opportunity to, to point kids like me to Jesus and to instill values that would eventually lead to better husbands and fathers and sisters and wives and friends. And so knowing the impact that a godly coach um, and a godly athlete proclaiming the message of Jesus with their life, the impact that 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 can have, um, it's just an unbelievable blessing for me to be able to minister with um, FCA and to oversee FCA uh, ministry for our area. 
Um, and when Jamie asked me to, to speak for This Is My Story, I was like, awesome. I love this series. This is great. Exactly what Eric was saying, just an opportunity to get to know each other. Um, and then he told me that I was speaking on Father's Day. And I was like, oh, man, we're in the big leagues, right? This is awesome. I got a, a holiday. And I, and I was super excited. Um, but it is a little odd to stand up here and talk about myself for 30 minutes. I don't necessarily think I'm that important. My story is not that unbelievable. But I do want to I do want to tell it. I do want to share a few of the things that God has been able to bring me through in my life um, because I do think it paints um, a small picture of the kind of redemptive love that Jesus offers. And I hope that my story um, can speak to someone in some way or there's someone listening that could benefit from the things that God has been able to bring me through in my life. Um, and so for, for my story to make sense, I thought it would be good to give you a little bit of background on my family, my, my parents, and kind of their upbringing. So my mom grew up in a small town in, in Everglades, Florida, Chuckalusky, Florida, population 200 people, um, an island as big as the size of this building. Um, and she, she grew up in this little town where the only um, legal pastimes were fishing and playing basketball. That was your life on the island. And um, she, she grew up with her and her, her three siblings just living a simple, small fish town life. And um, I, my grandfather was a commercial fisherman and my grandmother actually worked at the smallest post office in the world in Ochapi, Florida. I'm not lying to you. You can look it up. There's a sign in front of it and everything. Um, they used to get mail from Norway and Sweden. People just thought it was really cool to send a letter to the smallest post office in the world. And they... Um, um, and I mentioned the, the only legal pastimes being basketball and fishing because in the, in the 80s when my, my uncle and my aunt and my mom were growing up, it was the height of the Cuban drug cartels. And so they would source out these young uh, kids in the Everglades to ride uh, their, their boats out to the middle of the swamp where nobody could get to and they would pick up drugs and bring it back to the mainland. And there was this huge, that was big business in the islands at the time. And I remember hearing those stories and there's actually a fun fact, a pretty solid little documentary on it called Square Grouper that you can look up online. That's what they called the bales that they would go pick up. And um, my great uncle and his three tooth smile gets about 15 minutes of pretty solid fame in there talking about the, the old days. And it was a wild time, just a crazy place to grow up. My grandfather did, wanted nothing to do with it and didn't want his family to have anything to do with it. And so he was, um, just tried to be good and honest. And when he would ride his, his line fishing, he, if he saw any of that out in the swamp, he would cut the bales and sink them. And you can imagine how popular that made him in the town with people who were making a living off that stuff, right? And so he, uh, he, he, he lived that out in this way. And, and that way of life didn't last very long. I remember a story from my mom when her junior year of high school that they raided the island and they took away two thirds of the male population in Everglades City in a, in a drug sting because of, of those kids running out the airboats. Just a wild, unbelievable time. And so in the middle of that, my mom and her family, uh, my grandfather just carved out a life uh, for his family. Um, just, and he lived by a few simple ideals. The man could quote every proverb from memory. And he just wanted to trust Jesus, love his family, 
and, and serve those around him. Just do right. It was a few simple ideals that made sense for him and made him the man of character that, was, that brought him respect to everyone that met him. And a lot of those ideals were directly passed down to my mom. And so my dad came up with a very different upbringing and a very different lifestyle. His father, my grandfather, was a long-haul truck driver and an alcoholic. And so his role in the family was to come home a couple times a month He'd bring toys or a peace offering from his last visit, and then he'd wreak havoc for a few days, and then he'd get back on the road. And that was the cycle of dysfunction that my dad grew up in. And for him and his sister, all of that brokenness, the only a shining light in the middle of that was my rock of a grandmother who stood in the gap for her family and, and kept them as safe as she could and protected them in the middle of that season. And so my dad has this um, dramatic conversion experience after which he, he accepts a call to preach at 15. So you can imagine this little high-pitched 15-year-old kid running around to every backwoods church of God in North Georgia, every tent revival that they let him speak out, juiced up on the Holy Spirit, just telling everybody he could about Jesus. And so that was my dad. And he did that all the way up through high school and into college and met my mom and did that vocationally, um, bivocationally for uh, most of, of our life. And so you have these two stories colliding with each other with my parents. And it was in a way that I can really only describe as ordained. You had two imperfect people who just perfectly fit and really tried their best to submit to one another, to love each other like Christ loved the church, to, to, to love and serve their family well. And so the, the home that they created for me and my sister was just a place of, of peace and rest and laughter and uh, not perfect by any means, but just an absolute blessing for me, for me and my life. And so that was kind of the way that, that I came up. My dad was a bivocational pastor. My mom was a middle school PE teacher and coach. And... Um, Really, we were immersed in this active faith in our life. Everything that we did ran through this idea that there was a good God and he loved us and he had a plan for our life. And we grew up in a Pentecostal environment where the Holy Spirit was active and moving and it was important for us to be sensitive to his voice. And so as, as we came up in that environment, um, our faith and relationship with God ran through everything we did. Um, it was the staple of our household. And I came up, um, I loved playing sports. I loved music. Um, we were active in our church community. There were, there were so many pillars of, of that stable home environment. Um, and so it was just a really, really cool childhood to come up in, in an atmosphere like that. And I, and I came through middle school and high school and got an opportunity to go play football at Shorter University, a little D2 school up in Rome, Georgia. And I get to school and I'm playing ball and I'm, I'm meeting friends. I'm living a college life. I'm having a blast. And, and about six months through my, my freshman year of college, the world that I knew was over. It, it got turned on its head. And, for, and to give you a little background to this big moment in my life, my, my junior and senior year of high school, my mom started to lose function in her kidneys due to a disease called PKD, polycystic kidney disease. And we knew this was going to be an issue. Um, it runs very strong in the genes of our family. My, my grandma passed away from it. My aunt and uncle both have it. So we knew it was probably going to be an issue at some point. 
And her kidney function deteriorated to the point where she had to quit teaching and coaching and she eventually had to get on dialysis weekly. Um, And then eventually it got to the point where they said, you're going to have to go on to a kidney transplant list for for you um, to survive. And so we we get her on uh, the kidney transplant list. And guys, I'm telling you, we saw an, an unbelievable move of God. In six months, my mom got on the kidney transplant list and got a kidney match and surgery in six months. And if you guys have ever been in the, in a, a, near a situation like that, you know the transplant um, the transplant list can go for days and years and years and years, and, and people can wait for so long to get that opportunity. So my mom gets a kidney in six months, and then in six weeks, we watched her body completely reject the kidney, completely to the point of failure. And, and I'm sitting with some friends of mine, actually in Tifton, Georgia, and I get a call from my dad and he says, hey son, I told you if it ever, if it ever got bad, I'd call and, and it's bad. I need you to come up to Atlanta. And so I drive as fast as I can up 75 and I walk into the building, the hospital where my mom was, and I walk in and it's everyone that we love, our closest friends, our family, immediate family, and everyone's crying. There was just a weight in the room. It was almost like there wasn't enough oxygen to breathe. And I walked in and the doctors come to us and they basically say, because of complications is because of where your, your mom is at. There's, there's really nothing we can do. We're going we're gonna to have to pull the plug. And I remember we come into the room, our immediate family, and they pull the tubes off of her body and we stand around her and we're praying and we're singing. And we, we sat there and watched as she breathed out and God breathed in and she was gone just like that in six weeks. Man, we were devastated. It was, it was surreal. And so we sit there in the middle of that grief trying to understand, well, what do we, what do, we do now? And there's that point in the grieving process, if you've ever been, uh, have you ever lost someone where, well, I have, to, I have to go back to my life. I have to figure out what the new normal looks like now that um, that, that person is not here. So my uh, dad and sister go back to Calhoun um, and I go back to, to school. And guys, I, I, I got back to school and I was just, I was just lost. The, the God that I had... Um, grown up believing in and the God that I had so much faith in, I have to be honest with you, he was just nowhere to be found. I, I remember uh, getting to school and it wasn't like I questioned God's existence. I, I, I thought he was out there. I just didn't know if I liked him very much. And I, and I didn't really question God's existence, but I definitely questioned his character, right? Was he the kind of God that would move heaven and earth to give your mom a kidney and then take it back six weeks later? Is that what God is like? And so I started to just wrestle with these questions of, man, what does that mean if that's really the character of God? And so um, I, I sit in the middle of that, going back to school, and I had changed my major to, to become a Christian studies major with the idea of going into some sort of vocational ministry. And so I'm in these classes, and I'm learning about uh, the atonement theories and the authorship of X, Y, and Z, part of the Bible and all this stuff. Man, I was just, I was just lost. I was just lost. And I remember that that brokenness, that spiritual brokenness that I had, it turned into an intellectual challenge. I was like, you know what? If I can just go learn who God is, if I can just go uh, find every argument and counter argument for his goodness and his existence, then the world will just make sense. And I'll put the pieces of my mind back together and it'll just work. And so that's what I did. And so I immersed myself in every bit of knowledge that my little brain could handle. And I'm trying to figure it out. And 
it was just, it got to the point where um, I realized that the, the faith that I had been immersed in in my life, the cornerstone of that faith was the, the wholeness and the, and the completeness of my family. I'd put so much weight in the, the stock of, of my family and my parents' relationship that when that peace was pulled out from under it, it felt like you kicked the, the bottom of the Jenga board and the whole thing was collapsing around me. And so as I sit in, in, in that season of my life, I remember there were a few shining lights that would peek through. I remember at my mom's funeral, we're there, and if you've ever been to a funeral, you know that it's, it's heavy and it's a little awkward because nobody knows what to say, and you're just there trying to, to show your respect. And, and I remember I look at the back of the room, and I see my head football coach and, and a few assistants and then a line of guys that I played with right behind him, and they come walking in, and they're in their Sunday best, and they walk up to me, and, and my head coach grabs him by the shoulders, and he says, son, I know, I know none of this makes sense. But I just want you to know that I love you. And he meant it. Man, if I, if, if I know anything else in this world, that man meant it when he said that he loved me. And we had a, a memorial for him last year. And the people that came who felt the same way and came to pay their respects, they filled up a football stadium. And so I remember him coming in. He looked me in the eyes and told me he loved me. And one at a time, his, his assistant coaches and, and guys that I played with walked by. And you got to understand, I'd been in the program for six months. They didn't owe me anything. I was a, a no-name freshman kid. They didn't know me from Adam, but it was worth, worth it to them to show up. And they may never know what it meant to me for them to be there, but it mattered. And I remember being in school when we had a, a missions class that I had, and we would go to the local homeless shelter in Rome, uh, the men's shelter, and we would go bring food and, and hang out and, and help where we could help. And I remember we would sit there and they had these Sunday services where they'd sing a few songs and, and somebody would speak. And I remember hearing the stories from these guys, how they lived in California or New York or um, lived right around the corner and they had lost everything. Their family was broken. They were strung out and addicted. Their entire life was falling apart. And I just remember there being so much joy in that room. They would talk about this Jesus that they had met who had put their mind back together, who had restored hope in the world around them, who was piecing their family back together. And I was just enamored. I was, I was taken by the joy in that room. And, and I remember being in a position where I was wrestling with this God that I could barely believe in, but I, I had this Jesus that I just couldn't run from. He was everywhere I turned. And so I, I didn't know how I felt about God, but I knew it felt good to love and to serve and to lay my life down for someone other than myself. I knew what that did for my soul. And so um, as I chased that feeling of trying to figure things out, I, I remember getting to the point where I said, you know what, I'm just going to search for Jesus. I'm just going to try to find Jesus. And wherever that leads me, that's where I'm going to go. And I remember... Um, I eventually came to this realization that, you know, it might be trivial for some, but it was transformative for me. I remember sitting there and thinking, you know, what if, what if Jesus really was the image of the invisible God, like it says in Colossians 1.15? What, what would it really mean if he and the Father were one? Or um, that when we loved one another, God's love was made perfect in us, like it says in 1 John 4, 12. What would it really mean for my life if that was the case? And I remember 
uh, thinking that, you know, all those times that my soul was at peace, what if I wasn't just doing nice things? What if I was actually seeing the face of God? What would that do for me? And I remember a specific story along with a host of other ones that really just drove that home and that idea home for me. And one of them was uh, the, the story of Lazarus in John 11. And I'm not going to read it word for word for the sake of time, but I, it, it's such a good story. You need to take time today to go read it. But in, in John 11, Jesus has been preaching and teaching, and he sits with the disciples. And it says that Lazarus, um, a, a friend of Jesus, was sick. And it says that the sisters, Martha and Mary of Lazarus, they send word to Jesus. They say, Jesus, the one whom you love, Lazarus, he's sick. And, and everyone's looking around because they know how Jesus feels about Lazarus. And he calms the room and says, no, 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 God's going God's to take care of this. You're going to see God's glory in this, in this situation. And, and when he calms the room, he waits two days and they sit there in the town they were in. And then he decides, you know what, it's time to go to Judea where Lazarus and his family would have been. And the, the disciples are there distraught. They say, Lord, the last time we were in Judea, they tried to stone you. They tried to put you to death. And again, he calms the crowd and he tells the disciples, no, 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 you don't understand. For your sake, I'm glad that you're here. You're going to see God move in this situation. And it says that they go to Judea and they get to the hillside right before they come down into the town. And it says that Martha, the sister of Lazarus, comes up the hill and meets Jesus. And it's a powerful few phrases, but it says she walks up to him and she looks in the face of her Messiah and says, Lord, if you'd have been here, my brother would still be alive. Have any of you ever felt like that? God, if you'd have just been here, this wouldn't have happened. God, if you'd have just been here, my brother would still be alive. And then she says, you know what? But I trust that, that whatever you ask of God, he'll do. And then they move back into, um, down the hill, going into the town where a, a group of, of Jews from the town had come out to the grave of Lazarus and they were sitting there with uh, the sisters and the family of Lazarus and this group is they're mourning and they're crying over their friend and, their, and the member of their community. And it says that um, Mary, the sister of Lazarus, comes to Jesus. And this is the same Mary that had taken the oil that she had and washed the feet of her Lord Jesus. And she walks up to him and she says the same thing. Lord, if you'd have just been here, my brother would still be alive. Lord, if you had just been here, Looking into the eyes of her Messiah, the one that she had placed all her faith in, saying, where were you? And it says that Jesus came down into the valley where everyone was there mourning. And it says that he walked up and saw the people. And it says that the Holy Spirit, he was moved by the Holy Spirit. And it's the shortest verse in the whole Bible. It says that Jesus wept. And it says that he walks down into the, uh, to the tomb where it would have been. And they roll the stone away. And it says that he he looks into the tomb and he calls Lazarus forth and it says that Lazarus comes out and it's this beautiful, moving, powerful experience that Jesus has with these people where he gets to show the power of God. And, it, and, and that part of the story to me um, was always what I took from it, that, that God moved, Lazarus got up, resurrection power, yes. But the more that I read this story when I look at it, the reason I love this story is because it's, it's the story not of a God who just delights in arbitrary justice, deciding who lives and who dies in the clouds in some, you know, laissez-faire way. That's, that's not the story that we see here. The story that we see here 
It's of a redeemer who, even as he works things for good, wades into the brokenness and the sadness of this world to sit in solidarity with those who are hurting. And he weeps with those who weep. And I, and I just remember f- just feeling that in my soul, the power of that. And so I came to this realization. And here's what I had to learn for, for myself. And it was this, that God chose not to be God without us. And he came here with skin on and the word became flesh. And when it did, well, it says that, that he broke bread with sinners. And it says that he, he sat with widows and he, he prayed for his enemies and he fed those who were hungry. He spoke truth to corrupt power and he cried at the graves of his friends. That, guys, that is the image of the invisible God, the, the, the one that sets the captives free, the redeemer of the world. That kind of love incarnate on this world, saves the, it saves us. It absolutely saves us. And so I sat there in the middle of this um, realization and, and I looked around and man, I, I thank God every day that I was able to move past the God of my, my past, my pain, my hurt, the things that I'd been through. And I was able to move past that idea of God so that I could allow Jesus to reintroduce me to the one that he called father, the one that he called Abba father. And guys, I'm telling you that that has made all the difference for me. And, and I don't have um, all the answers. I don't have anything figured out. The more that I learn, the more I realize I don't know. But my mom used to say that God gives grace for the journey. And man, I'm glad for the grace that he's given me on mine. And so for the last couple minutes that I have with you guys, I just want to speak directly to um, some of you who are listening today. And Father's Day isn't a good time for you. It's not a happy time. You, you look around um, at the, the, the world around you and say, how could God be a good, a good father? And, and whether it's because of the father that you didn't have or the father you wish you didn't have, or it's because of uh, your past relationships, your pain, your hurt, a broken church experience that you've had, you look at the world around you, you look at your past, and all you see is the God of your pain, the God of that broken, failed relationship, the God of that, that situation where I waited for him to show up and he just never came. And you look to that God and that's all you can see. So Father's Day for you is a broken time. It's a time of pain and hurt. And even in the midst of maybe the good that surrounds you in your life, you just, you can't, you can't even feel it. You can't touch it. And here's what I want to tell you. If you hear nothing else I say, I just want to encourage you to run to the feet of Jesus. Run to the feet of Jesus. He's the only place that you're going to find the joy and the peace and the rest that your soul is looking for. Because here's the thing. He's the kind of father that leaves the 99 to find the one. He's the kind of father who, when the prodigal son comes home after squandering his inheritance, he stands at the door with his arms wide open because his child has come home. That is the kind of father that Jesus called Abba. And so I want to tell you this, I want to tell you this, do not today or any day let the pain of your hurt, your past, your experience keep you from meeting the one that Jesus called father. Amen. Amen. Well, listen, guys, I, I, I love you and I appreciate the opportunity to spend some time with you. It is a blessing uh, for me and my family to be part of this church family. Um, and, and I'm going to turn it over to Eric. But, but as he comes, I just want to 
to, to let that be known that, man, this is a special place. You're, it's a special group of people. It's special church leadership. It's, a, it's an amazing time to find a church home where you can feel loved and supported and, and come together on a place, on a day like this where there's, there's, there's happiness and joy and pain and sadness and all of it meets together to, to, to chase after the one that, that, that we call Father, Savior, Lord, right? And so I just want to reiterate that. I'm going to turn it over to Eric, and he's going to close us out. Hey, once again, thanks for listening to the VFC podcast. If you live in the Thomasville area, we would love for you to connect with us in person. For more information about our weekly gatherings, including service times and directions, just visit us at vfcthomasville.org.